0: Listen, one day we are going to be sad to not see this every week, and I know some of you in particular have been amazed at how these plants have grown and thrived every week. Thank you for praying for them that 's clearly the only way they 've survived. I want you to know though not all have survived Josh is going to bring one in now this one this one hasn 't quite made it, and um, we didn 't quite get the prayer that was required um, it 's like the withering fig tree when we when I saw this. I I can only, I barely even know. There was one of our pastoral team that actually said, maybe we could just clip it and replant. I'm not going to tell you who that was, but his code name is Mustache. And it's up to you to figure out what's going on there. But I don't think we're going to be clipping that one. I think that one has sadly left us. Um, Not just for today, but every day for the rest of its short life. Um, That has gone. Well, I look forward, as I said, to us being back together so we can ridicule people in person and enjoy that again. I also look forward to being together and when we can hear the preached word in the flesh and enjoy one another. And the dynamic of one another's cannot be done on YouTube in the same way. They can only be done in the flesh. But I do thank God for the technology we have, and I do thank God that we do get to spend time in his word on Sunday mornings as we gather, albeit in our homes. And so I'd be grateful if you'd turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. We are presently in a series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's a wonderful letter that's all about the supremacy of Christ And it is a letter then that really does take us to fresh and breathtaking vistas of Jesus who is our life. We're going to read then together verses 21, 22 and 23 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for family. I thank you that church is not an online service. Church is a body, a family, a group of people, a temple that are being built together. And Lord, that's why even in these moments we long to be back together because there's something missing which is real life people next to us. But Lord, I do pray for the family, although we be scattered still this morning. Lord, would you minister to them in their homes. With this word that is sharper than a double-edged sword, would it pierce our hearts again this morning. Would you take us to new and breathtaking vistas of who you really are. What a king. What a saviour. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just what you do... When an 18-month-old toddler is stuck down a pipe and she's too deep to reach with your hands and too young for you to successfully communicate with. That's the challenge that Midland police encountered in October 1987 when 18-month-old Jessica McClure got stuck down an 8-inch pipe, a water well that was in her garden and actually got lodged there for three days. She had fallen 22 feet down this 8-inch wide pipe and had only stopped because where the pipe opens up to 18 inches, she had got stuck with a foot above her head on a piece of debris. And so she hung, suspended, above a 67-foot drop below her with a foot above her head down an 8-inch wide pipe. As Sergeant Andy Glascock wrote, this is what he then found at the scene. Hmm. Nobody understood the magnitude of it. You couldn't even begin to comprehend it. There was a small backyard with a little metal pipe sticking out of it. No one could believe that someone could fall down that, but they had. And it was as you heard the crying that you realized someone was really down there. Upon arrival, a few officers began a desperate attempt to try and free Jessica by digging with anything in sight, as other units and firefighters were called to the scene. They were making basically no progress trying to free her, and so eventually realized that they would need someone with real expertise to try and get her out. They contacted a man named David Lilly, who was a veteran engineer who worked with the U.S. Department of Mine Safety. This man had years of experience rescuing trapped miners. The problem was he was in New Mexico, and so it would take time to get him there. Meanwhile, everyone already at the scene started to put their heads together to figure out what to do. There was a backhoe there as someone tried to dig a hole. But that didn't work. The earth was too hard. They then decided to drill a hole next to the well and dig across to it. They thought it would be accomplished in an hour. Instead, it went on and on. More rescue teams, spectators and media began to show up all the time. The hardest part in it all was that you could hear her crying. It was a scared whimper. Like she was not sure what was going on. I have children and there was no way once you heard her voice, you could leave her there until the end of it. As I listened to Jessica cry, I thought about my children, my wife. I raised four kids of my own and adopted one more. I'm a child type of guy and so I couldn't listen to the crying too long without getting tears in my eyes. Finally, David Lilly, the expert in rescuing miners, arrived and he too soon met several obstacles. The rock beside the well was prehistoric rock that would take almost two days to cut through. They were making horrendously slow progress, drilling down at only two inches per hour. Finally, Lilly said that this wasn't going to work as it was and that they would need a high-pressure water blasting drill. The nearest one was all the way across to the state of Texas and so they had that immediately put on a plane. When the drill arrived, they began drilling very successfully and after three days of drilling down, they began to dig across by hand. It was tedious. But finally they got to the pipe, drilled a hole through it and the first rescuer reached up and touched Jessica's toe. The first actual rescue attempt was to prove unsuccessful they had trouble getting into the open shaft in a way that could free her and she just couldn't get her out the team came back up to the surface to reevaluate and regroup and at that point they realised there was no plan B they had to get her out one way or another even if they had to break her leg to get her out and she so she wasn't able to stay there for much longer the second time they went into the shaft everything at the surface was very tense then up came one of the rescue workers, holding baby Jessica in his arms. I immediately fell on my knees and started crying. Everyone was crying tears of gladness and there was joy on every face. For baby Jessica had been saved. Amen. <laughs> you know, I will never forget the moment that I first heard that story for myself. Because it so affected me. I mean, you can just imagine the scene and the horror of realizing your 18-month-old baby is down an 8-inch hole. And the horror of realizing we just have no way of getting her out. The horror of how long it was taking and how difficult that was. But then the joy that everybody must have felt in that moment when she does indeed come out in the rescuer's hands. I mean, if I was there as a parent or an observer or the media, oh my, there would be tears, there would be clapping, there would be cheering. It is an automatic response to this great rescue. And I'll never forget the first time I heard this story because the story itself is so provocative and evocative. It affects your emotions. But I was also so affected by this story Because in so many different ways, this story is an even more immediate reminder of an even greater rescue mission. A rescue mission that actually involved me. And a rescue mission that for me, would change my life forever. And it's that great rescue mission that these verses 21, 22 and 23 are all about. It's that great rescue that these verses all sing of. A rescue that involves me and indeed does involve you. And a rescue that would indeed change our lives forever. So I have two points this morning to help us understand this text. Number one, the divine reality. I want us to see this great rescue story. I want us to put ourselves in the story and realize we are the baby Jessica in this story. And then point two, I want us to look at the pastoral application. So I have felt burdened all the week for a certain group in particular that I think involves us all at different times. Namely people that aren't affected by this rescue story, are unamazed by this rescue story. Something that is actually an odd response to such a great rescue story. And I think God wants to minister to you and affect you this morning and come after you. Point one then, the divine reality. I mean, we too, just like Jessica, indeed have an incredible rescue story to tell. In fact, our rescue story is even greater than anything she could have ever seen or imagined. And the Apostle Paul begins this rescue story by reminding us, first of all, of who we were. The divine reality of Our past. Here's what he says in verse 21. He says, And you were once, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Right at the start of our rescue, he wants to help us see, you do realize this is who you were. And notice the way he changes the the case of the, the language of what he's talking about here. In verses 15 through 20, he's talking in third person. He's talking about he and him. He's talking all about Christ. But now, right at the start of verse 21, and you. It is deeply and deliberately personal. He wants to look in the eyes of every individual looking on at this point and help them see, Colossians, as I write to you, this is your story. In fact, this is the story of every. Christian, you. You were once alienated. My friends, that whole reality, what he's telling us there is that you were once far, far away from God. A condition that is abiding, a condition which is persistent, and a condition which is on. Going. You and I were once far away from God. You were down the mind, uninterested in the Lord, alienated from Him, cut off from Him in every way. And as such, He tells us, you were once hostile in mind. This continual alienation from God then expressed itself in a mind that was hostile to Him. And my friends, you need to understand this was the posture of all of our minds prior to faith in Jesus Christ. See, sometimes you meet people and you ask them about their testimony and their story and they give the impression that I never never not believed. I was just a Christian kind of from the womb. Well, I want to encourage you. No, you were not. You were once alienated from God. And you were once hostile in mind before him. You once upon a time were not worshipping him with all your heart and your mind and your strength. You were not interested in him as the creator of it all. You just wanted to give yourself to the creation. You were hostile in your mind towards him. You were down the mind uninterested in him. And you were hostile in your mind before him. You did not want to bow the knee to worship him. You wanted to live for yourself. Paul tells us in that state, we were not just alienated, we were not just hostile in mind, but actually we were indeed doing evil deeds. With this alienation then came hostility of mind. Sure enough, then this hostility of mind came through in actions. Just like we said a few weeks ago, right thinking leads to right living. But guess what? Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. And what Paul wants to help us see is that was all of your story. You were hostile in mind. Delving into wrong thinking about who God was. And as a result, you were doing evil deeds. Living for yourself at enmity with God. You know, for some Christians, again, this can be hard to get our head around. Because you think, I don't think I'm that bad. You know right? we don't think we're that bad? We don't think we're that bad. Because as we look down the line, we look to the left. And to the left is everybody that's worse than us. Osama Bin Laden and Hitler. And really nasty people. And we think, oh, I'm better than them. I think I'm okay. Whereas God calls us to look to the right. And on the right hand side is the holiness and majesty of God. His standards. He's comparing us to his perfections and glory and holiness and majesty. Compared to him, make no mistake, we were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 3, we were by nature... Objects of wrath, like the rest of mankind. My friends, and you includes you. And this was your story. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. An object of his wrath, you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That was our story. We are down the mine, and unlike baby Jessica who was whimpering and trying to get attention, you weren't trying to do a thing. You were dead. That's who we all once were prior to salvation. Down the mine, objects of his wrath, alienated from God, uninterested in God, at enmity and hostility with him, and doing evil deeds. And you, this is your story. But then, in God's amazing grace, Paul then points us to the divine reality of our present. Look again at verse 21 and the start of 22. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Oh, my goodness. You were once dead in your transgressions and sins, down the mine, alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And yet now, through Jesus Christ and his finished work, you have been reconciled to God. My friends, this is the greatest rescue mission ever told. This is a staggering reality. The one that we have just learned about in verses 15 through 20, about his supremacy and majesty and glory... The one who's made all things and all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. The perfect, holy, glorious King of Kings. Then died in your place. So that you could be reconciled. My friends, this is incredible grace. This is the greatest rescue mission ever told. And it's even greater when you understand that He did it all to rescue you required His life. For you to be pulled up from the mine meant that he had to get in the mine and take the fall for you. That's what the great exchange was all about. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, what glorious truth. It is the great exchange. You are down the mine, but I will come after you on a greatest rescue mission ever told. I will pull you up from the mine, but I will get in the mine for you. He who had no sin will become sin for us and take on the wrath of God in our place. Staggering truth, staggering reality. If you have ever wondered how God feels about you, then behold verse 22. This is what he's done for you. Such is his passionate and particular and specific love for you. He who knew no sin took on your sin. So that through his perfection we might become the righteousness of God. And the fruit of it he explains in the remainder of verse 22. He says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I love that. He not just pulled you out of the mind, but in doing so, he positioned you in the righteousness of his life to be now declared before the Lord as holy and blameless and above reproach. Are you aware that's how God the Father sees you? He sees you as somebody clothed in the righteousness of his son. You are now an heir with Christ, and accordingly, he sees you as holy, a saint, blameless, and above all reproach. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid for your sin in full, and he transferred his righteousness in full and put it around your body. It is staggering reality. It is the glory of the gospel. It is scandalous grace. But it is true and glorious grace that is attached to our lives. My friends, this is why when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we must then look at verse 22 and remind ourselves, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's me. Yes, I am guilty as charged. But Jesus has paid it all for me. He has covered my sin with his blood. And so when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look in verse 22 and see him who has now reconciled me. Sam Storms wonderfully says it this way. He says, we need to fight the paralyzing power of past transgressions with the promise of what Christ has now done So when your conscience is pricked by the memory of past failures and sin, a simple cry of, but now, or he has now, will bring healing and hope. And so it will, my friends. When Satan tempts you to despair with verses 21, helping you see this is who you are. This is what you still do. This is what you're still tempted in and practicing at different times. Upward we look at verse 22 and we remember, but he has now reconciled me. My sin is forgiven past, present and future. He has saved me by his grace. The gavel of the judge has come down in my life and I have been declared righteous. Scandalous grace. But the reality of the gospel, the reality of this great, Rescue The reality of the fruit of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And my friends, I wouldn't want you to get then unhelpfully distracted by verse 23, by unhelpfully misunderstanding what he's saying here. Something that I think can so easily be done, particularly depending upon your background. This is what he says at the start of verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. I mean, if we wrongly misunderstand that, we could think that this is a question of concern here. As if Paul's saying, well, listen, maybe they'll make it, maybe they won't, I'm not sure. But that is not the way this is written, both in the Greek and in the context. The way this is written, this isn't a question of concern. This is a question of celebration, because Paul knows you will make it. I've seen your faith, I've seen how this is working out in your life. This is your rescue story. You see, my friends, Paul knows only too well what Jesus said in both John 6 and John 18. Namely, that all that the Father has given him, he will lose none. Every single individual that the Father gives to the Son, through faith in the Son, he holds on to them like a mother to a child and he will never, ever let them go. When Jesus says that He will carry us on to the end, we can rest secure and at peace that that is true then for me. Because He holds me. All that the Father has given me, I will lose none, Jesus says. Paul knows that. And Paul knows that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He knows that the only way of salvation is putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But what he also knows is where that faith is real and genuine, then that faith will never, ever be alone. It will play a part in how we live. Which is what he's talking about here in verse 23, that we will continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. But my friends, we must understand, Paul understands that their faith is genuine. That's why he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love that you have for all the saints, and the hope laid up for you in heaven. I mean, it's staggering reality. Paul wants them to know, I've seen your faith, I've heard of your faith, I know you're all in. And so this is not here a question of concern; it's a question of celebration. Colossae, I know you're going to make it, and so I know this story is yours. Peter O'Brien, very helpfully in his commentary, he basically says that if you wanted to paraphrase this verse, you could actually say, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, as I'm sure you will. And the way that it's written and constructed, the Greek particle A and the indicative mood of the verb epimeno. Both of those particles and indicative moods help you understand this is not a question of concern. It's a question of celebration. I know you're going to make it. And so as Paul closes the curtain on this text, what he wants them to know is that Colossae, this is the divine reality on your life. You were down the mine, alienated from God, hostile to him, practicing evil deeds. But now Jesus Christ has come after you and you've been pulled out. You've been declared holy and blameless, above reproach before God. He has reconciled you through the glories of the cross. That really is the greatest rescue mission ever told. They're in it. And my friends, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd want you to know this is your rescue story as well. You know, when baby Jessica is pulled on that day in October 1987 from that pipe, when she is finally set free, I doubt that anybody had to give out handouts to uh, you know, the family or the relatives and say, hey, listen, I've got a thought. When she comes out, if we could get a bit tearful, and maybe smile and maybe clap. I mean, let's, let's at least be excited. I doubt that instruction has ever needed to come. Because they just feel it in their bones. And so when they see what, so what is happening in this rescue mission, they cannot help but cry and cheer and clap. Because she who was once trapped has now been saved. And my friends, in all honesty, I think for us as Christians, when we realize our own story, The only reasonable response is amazement and joy and thanksgiving and praise bringing all glory to God. And yet the truth is, we all have times, whether it be a day, a week or a month, maybe even years, where grace doesn't seem that amazing where this story doesn't amaze us like it once did. Maybe for some of us, although we put our faith in Jesus Christ, this story's never amazed us. It's never affected us in our emotions. It's never affected our heart in a way that Christianity becomes the greatest delight of your life. It just becomes something you are. Like a bumper sticker on a car. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Not emotionally involved. And yet, my friends, I believe the Lord wants our hearts. He wants the entirety of who we are. And that brings me on to my second point, the pastoral application. And I really want to seek to answer the question, what do you do when you find yourself unamazed by grace? What do you do when this doesn't affect you? What do you do when you're not affected to the core of who you are? You see other people being affected and they seem to be amazed, but in honesty, you're just not. And so you hear people say, oh, Sunday, I can't wait for Sunday, it's the best day of the week. And you just go, yeah, I think I can wait, I'm fine. You hear other people just wanting to sing praises to the Lord because they're so affected. And you think, yeah, I kind of get it, but I just don't feel that in my heart. You know, I'd have to say for me as a Christian, particularly as a, as a younger Christian, I felt this many times. I could see other people amazed by grace, but it didn't, it didn't affect me in the same way. And I'd have to say there's been many times since, where for weeks or months, I'm just aware that somehow, somewhere I've grown colder to this great rescue story. It doesn't shine in my heart like it once did. And as I was preparing for this message this week, I really felt this, this reality the Lord put on my heart to speak into and to try and help because that's maybe your story. Maybe you're in a season or maybe you're about to walk into a season where this rescue story does not dazzle you like it once did. Maybe it's never really dazzled you. So what do you do when you find yourself unamazed by grace? Well, John Stott, I think, gives the answer in headline form. He says, the cross is a blazing fire in which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough to it for the sparks to fall on us. And headline, that is the answer, my friend. The cross, the centerpiece of our great rescue mission is a blazing fire. The sparks coming off it all the time. But we have to get close enough to to it, near enough to it for those sparks to fall on us. That's the six things just in closing that I want to give you in bullet form to really help you understand just how we might be able to get close to the cross. Designed to help you and serve you. Number one then. Regularly read and reflect upon the Gospels. If you are unamazed by grace, I want to encourage you to IV yourself into the Gospels at this time. Regularly read them. J.C. Raw puts it this way, I cannot improve upon his words. He says, It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable and it is wise not to exalt one part of the Bible at expense of another. But I do think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity but it is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with <clears throat> With faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the King. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus Himself, to see the King's own face and to behold His beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ like man must be constantly studying Christ Himself. And the Gospels were written. To make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Spirit has told us the story of his life and death. His sayings and his doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Saviour. His ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, his power. Are graciously unfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Saviour? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make us familiar with Christ. And therefore, I wish us to study the Gospels. Listen. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought, in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. For we should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. My friends, I simply cannot improve upon those words. Given all that Jesus is and all that he's done and understanding that the cross is a blazing fire, the Gospels give us a unique opportunity to stand really close to Calvary. Let there not be a word or a deed or a day in the Savior's life that holds no interest for us. If we want to be amazed at Jesus, get in the Gospels. In particular, the Gospels. So number one, regularly read and reflect upon the Gospels. Number two, read a good book on the cross every year. Now some people say they don't like reading. Sorry to hear that. Reading is going to be really, really important. And the good news is you have been given the mind of Christ when you became a Christian. So I reckon you should be able to do some reading. And as you consider reading, I want to encourage you to read a good book on the cross every year. Good books are such a gift of grace to us as they point our attention to the cross and point our attention to what the scriptures teach us about the glories of Calvary. A couple of recommendations then. Number one, Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. It's probably one of those books, at least for me, that completely changed my life. So I want to encourage you, if you've never read Living the Cross End Life, um, get that like tomorrow and read it. It is such an amazing book. Number two, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. Second book that really did change my life. Transforming Grace, the, the um, sub, subtitle to it is Living Confidently in God's Unfailing Love. Something that I think I never really grasped going up. I was constantly striving and struggling with legalism. And oh my, I read that book and it changed my life. So Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. The Cross of Christ by John Stott. A wonderful book that will help us to get near Calvary. And then Cries from the Cross by Erwin Lutzer. A wonderful book that will just help you to gather around Calvary literally. And see him there. Beholding him there. The glories of the sinless saviour dying in your place. Number three. Third idea is you seek to get near the cross if you are unamazed by grace. Number three. Study the holiness of God and the doctrine of sin. Robin Bevere, one of my friends, pastor friends, he says it this way. He says, if you do not see the enormity of your sin, then you will never appreciate the enormity of his love. and if you do not recognize the depth of your depravity, then you will never appreciate the depth of his mercy. That's brilliant. If you don't see who you really were before the Lord, you will never appreciate the enormity of his love. If you don't understand how far down the mind you really were, you will never appreciate the depth of his mercy. It's just the way it works. When we spend time in verse 21 and we understand this is who we are, that's not a bad thing because it will make verse 22 dazzle us in a very different way, understanding who we really were. I remember many years ago when I wanted to buy Emma a a ring And we went to a shop, and I'd never really been ring shopping that much, so it was kind of new to me. We went to this shop, and we walk in, and it was clear that there was going to be quite an expensive shop, but once you got in, it was clear that you weren't going to be leaving without trying to be sold something as well. And so we took a seat. I knew that was a bad sign. They offered us a glass of champagne. I knew that was a really bad sign. And then... Different rings started to come out, and I'll never forget what they did first. As the rings came out, they took a black velvet tablecloth and put it across the table and stretched it out. You think, what are they doing that for? And then as the rings came out, oh my goodness, with that black backdrop, the rings sparkled in a completely different way. My friends, understanding the doctrine of sin, understanding who you really were in light of God's holiness is the black velvet that allows the gospel of grace to shine in a very different way. So I want to encourage you. It is not a bad thing to look at your past. It is a wonderful thing. That's why Jesus says the one who's been forgiven much will love much. But the truth is we've all been forgiven much, but just for many of us we don't realize how much we've been forgiven. We don't realize who we really were. We don't realize the horrific state we were really in outside of Christ. So I want to encourage you, study the holiness of God and the doctrine of sin. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul is a wonderful book to start with. It's a whole study on Isaiah 6 and just gazes at the Lord. And then The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard. Just a wonderful book on the doctrine of sin that will help you to understand who you really were. Number four, make good gospel-centered songs the soundtracks of your life. Good gospel-centered songs. See, just like movies have soundtracks, our lives have soundtracks as well, don't they? Songs which evoke memories for us, songs which evoke passions for us. Songs are powerful things. They remind us of where we were at a certain time. They remind us of how we feel about things. Songs themselves evoke passions. And songs have the wonderful ability to get things stuck in our heads. That's why the shark song was going around all of last year. And it just goes around your head and everybody knew it. Because it gets stuck. Well, I want to encourage you. Get the gospel stuck in your head. Allow the gospel to function in your life. and So make good gospel-centered songs the soundtracks of your life, not songs that are primarily about what you're going to do for God, but songs that are primarily about what God has done for you. And So I want to encourage you, do all you can to listen to good gospel-centered songs. It's one of the things that I do, for me, love about Sovereign Grace songs. They're nearly always about Jesus They're about the gospel. They're about what he's done for us. And if you come into our home, which many of you have been to our home, you will find there's music on nearly all the time. It's because we want to fill our lives with good gospel-centered songs. We want to let these songs inform our lives. I mean, we've had to have a bit of a rest on Turn Your Eyes to Jesus because my dear wife played it twice a day for like three months, you know. had a bit of an overdose. But find good gospel-centered songs that can fill your lives with truth. And get them stuck in your head. And do all you can, likewise, to meditate on good gospel-centered songs. Don't just play them, but think about them. You know, One of the best things I ever did was buy a, a hymn book. I didn't grow up on hymns. I grew up at a Pentecostal church. I don't recall singing any hymns. We thought that was for old people with white hair. But as I got older, I bought a hymn book and started to spend time in hymn books and realized these are amazing. These truths are unbelievable. Let me test it out on you. Song 566, turn there. No, don't turn it. And can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for all. my God, it found out me. Listen to this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. So no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown, though Christ my own. (laughs) That's wonderful! Get a hymn book and read hymns like that and allow them to inform your life. It is your story. It's life-changing. Number five, begin each day by giving thanks to God for the gospel and the effects of the gospel in your life. Life begin each day by giving thanks for the gospel here's the reality each and every day of your life you will be tempted to forget the gospel and move on from the gospel each and every day we will drift away from it so each and every day find a way to begin each and every day by reminding yourself of the gospel remind yourself that you were down the mine, you were alienated, you are hostile in mind you are actively at enmity with God in the way you behaved and yet Christ came after you and reconciled you and now you stand before him holy and blameless and above reproach because of what he's done that will change your day it will totally reframe your day each and every day we will be tempted to forget, each and every day we need to actively remember And then number six, the sixth piece of advice I want to help you with. Regularly review your testimony of salvation. Regularly review it. And you, it says in verse 21. And so what is your story? Regularly review it. Regularly think about it. You see, so many people today want to forget their past. The mistakes they've made and the sins they've committed aren't subjects they like to revisit and so they just want to forget about them. But I want to encourage you, as Christians, one of the best ways we can draw near to the blazing fire of the cross is to deliberately remember our past and allow it then to inform our present. Remember who you really were. Remember then who you really were outside of the saving grace of God. And remember then what he really has done for you and what that now means. And my friends, I want to encourage you. Every conversion testimony is a miracle of grace. Whether you were saved when you were six or 86, it is all a staggering work of grace because you were down the mine, but now you are free. Every single one of us has a story to tell. So I want to encourage you, regularly review it regularly rehearse it and regularly retell it. You know, what we have in these verses really is the greatest rescue of all. And it is a rescue that involves me and it involves you. We were once alienated. We were once hostile in mind. We were once doing evil deeds. But Christ has now given us peace through the cross. We have now been given reconciliation through his flesh. And as a result, we are holy and blameless and above reproach. And the cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. And so friends, I want to encourage you then may we get close to the cross. And may we never move on. This is the greatest rescue story of all. It's your story. Never forget it. And would all glory go to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for rescuing us. I thank you for coming after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. For you are the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. And you are the one who spins the galaxy. Well, from him and through him and to him are all things. And you are supreme, not only of nature and in personhood, but you are supreme in the church. And yet you gave your life to die in my place. Lord, with that reality of how great you are, and yet how personal you are, be the defining truths of our life. You called our names and saved us. The greatest rescue story I've ever told includes our names. So it all glory go to you. Amen.